This is your coffee break. Hi friends, I am back again this week. I have with me someone very exciting. Uh, I have with me Alan Alda, who is, well, I want to say a person who needs no introduction, but I, I suppose I should give an introduction anyway. Alan Alda has been on TV, movies, uh, in theater. He has uh, portrayed Hawkeye Pierce on MASH. He has written several books, several TV episodes, all sorts of amazing and wonderful things. Uh, to this day, he has founded the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University and has also founded the Alda Communication Training Program, which I think we're going to talk a little about today. Um, may I call you Alan or do you prefer Mr. Alda? Your Highness would be fine. <laughs> Alan, Alan, of course. Alan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you. I'm really delighted to talk to you, too. It's a pleasure. Um, I guess first and foremost, uh, I would I would love to dive into talking about your book. You released a book in June of this year. It's called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. I've been reading it. It's so delightful. It's very wonderful. Um, I was wondering if you could start by sharing a, a little bit about your interest in the field of communication. It's interesting. I, I didn't realize I was interested in the field of communication the whole time I was learning to be an actor, but it gave me the most important and fundamental understanding of what communication is. When I started talking to scientists on television, uh, which I did for 11 or 12 years on Scientific American Frontiers, a program on PBS and a couple of other miniseries on PBS, I realized that what I was doing was using what I had been trained to do as an actor for, you know, I've been acting for more than 60 years. And the essential part of, for me anyway, I mean, everybody has a different approach to acting. For me, essential to acting is relating to the other actor and in a way relating to your own thought process. And that sense of relating, of letting the other person in, letting it move you to go wherever it goes in an improvisational way, even though you say the same words, the way, the way it comes out is different every time, every time you play the scene with the other actor. It's like musicians. The notes are the same, but the music mm. is different each time. And it should be. Dancing, you know, dancing is there. People say, how can you say the same words? How can you do the same performance every night on the stage? I don't. They do a different performance every night. But it's, so it's like if somebody said, you want to dance? You don't say, no, I did that. <laughs> you, you, it's different all the time, and that's where the pleasure is and the fun. So I realized when I was doing the science program that I was using these tools, and I began to suspect that if we could train scientists to possess these same tools, get enthused about them, and use them when they're when they're trying to communicate with an audience, the communication might be much better because it might be a more human experience, a more conversational, interactive experience, the way it is uh, for an actor on the stage. So I started teaching, I started teaching scientists uh, improvisation to help them with their communication. And 
that made an enormous difference. And then we went into finding what the message really ought to be. We had a way of introducing them to the idea that not only do you have a message when you communicate, that's not the most important part of it. Mm-hmm. The most important part of it, do you have a message that lands on the other person? And is there a way of knowing that your message is getting through to them and meaning something to them so it sticks? And it's, it's, uh, it's something that they, they can then use instead of reject or ignore. So that ability to read the other person is why I called the book, if I, if I understood you when I had this look on my face, but it's kind of an essential image of knowing who you're talking to in the moment, in real time, as you talk to them. And I found that it even works when you write for them. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how it would apply to, to writers as well? You know, you're speaking to an audience, essentially, you're communicating with someone you can't see who might be in a very different time and place. How does relating work um, across the medium of writing? I, here's how I think it works. Once you get used to the idea that there's somebody, a real person at the other end of your communication, whether you're talking to them or writing for them, or you're on the you're you're on the radio, or you're on a podcast like mm-hmm. this. Is somebody paying attention at the other end, and you want to keep them paying attention. You want to you want to make it easy for them to follow you. It's your job to help them follow you. So, what are the tools you have? There's a wonderful uh, linguist at uh, Duke University called George Gopen, G-O-P-E-N, who's uh, studied this. And he, he suggests that there are expectations that the reader has when you start a sentence. The reader expects to know very quickly toward the beginning of the sentence what the sentence is going to be about. In a way, what's the hero of the sentence? And then the reader expects to know very soon after that what's going on in the sentence, what the hero is doing in the sentence. And then by the time you get to the end of the sentence, that's a place of emphasis. For me, it's like the punchline of a joke. It's where, it's where you have the thwap or the, the click of what it is you're, the, the sentence is leading to. And then this, the reader expects in the next sentence, early on, according to Gopin, and I think he's right. Early on in the next sentence, the reader expects to see how this next sentence ties in with the end of the last sentence mm-hmm. so that there's a smooth flow. And there are a number of ways to do this, so it's not going to get boring or that you do it the same way every time. But what's, this sounds simple-minded, what I'm saying. It's so, it's so rudimentary, and yet... I can't tell you how many sentences I encounter all during the day, reading, reading the newspaper, reading science journals, reading travel books, almost any kind of reading. I find there's a whole lot of clutter in the beginning, and I don't know what they're talking about. And then they go through two or three clauses before they get to what's really going on. And I have to go back and read the sentence again, sometimes two or three times to say, oh, I see what they mean. This could have been said in two or three shorter sentences, or they could have made the point with the same number of words if they organized the sentence a little better. Mm-hmm. And paragraphs go more when the sentences are linked. So 
this is if if this is true about expectations about what readers expect, and maybe this is only true about um, nonfiction writing, although I think it can apply to fictional writing too. If it's if it's all true, and I think it is, then this is a way. It's a kind of way of knowing what's going on in the other person's head. If most people have these expectations, at least in the English language, then we, we have a clue about what they're thinking and feeling as we communicate with them. And that's really at the heart of what I think I've learned about communication, which is to be aware of how they're taking it in. Because if I have the best message in the world, but it doesn't land on you, if you don't get it, if you don't follow me, what good is my message? That's why I think it's not the most important part of it. It's certainly important. What I say is really important. But the way I say it, the words I choose, the way I organize my thinking as I talk to you ought to have a lot to do with how you're thinking and feeling as you're listening to me. At least that's what I think I found. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I, that's one of the things I loved most about about your book is – um, sort of putting the onus on the on the speaker or the communicator, or the leader in the conversation to make sure that they are communicating their message in a way that it's understood, in a way that people can anticipate and adjust their expectations accordingly. I also love that that's on such a, a granular level. Thinking about that as a writer, you know, you think about the work as a whole, you think about the whole book or the whole play or the whole novel. And really, when it comes down to it, you're relating to people with every single sentence on the page, and, and you're there with them, in a way. As the author, you're there setting expectations and fulfilling them constantly with every sentence, if I'm understanding you correctly. Very much so. And you, as you said that, you reminded me of the problem in playwriting of exposition. And I think a lot of writers regard exposition, and a lot of teachers of playwriting seem to regard exposition as a necessary um, device to inform the audience about what they need to know to follow the rest of the story. And what it, what it often becomes is pouring information into their heads, which is about as entertaining as hearing a bunch of jargon or hearing the, the hearing the subway map explained to you. It, it's, if it's not done in an engaging way, if you're not capturing their attention, then you're just telling them a lot of stuff that, by the way, the characters would never say to each other in real life. Um, the worst example I can think is if you're doing a play about Abraham Lincoln and somebody says to Lincoln, well, Mr. President, the war has been on for three weeks now. <laughs> like, what, he doesn't get the paper at the White House? He doesn't know? They, he knows that the war has been over three weeks. The only reason the writer is doing that, or something like it, is to tell the audience where they are in time. But if you don't keep the audience's sensibilities in mind and respect them enough to have them listen to characters speaking as characters really would, characters don't give each other unnecessary information. So... That's that's a way of violating the, the idea. I mean, and it's considered to be very often a, a rudimentary element in playwriting, exposition. But people say you got to bury the exposition. Sometimes, no matter how deeply you bury it, there's still a mound of dirt you trip over as you, as you cross over it. And 
if we, if we feel there's something the audience needs to know, they can't really keep up with what's going on without some information, we've got to go to a lot of trouble to make it sound like it's not just pure information that we're targeting them with. It doesn't feel good to watch that kind of a play, to me, anyway. I think the same thing. I listen to a lot of podcasts and audio dramas and fictional podcasts, and they're they're always you know, hey, it's me, your sister. It's like, you know, I know that, obviously. I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a, yeah, well, yeah, it's like, I need to remind you of my relationship to you. There's such an interesting line that you're drawing out here between the necessary and the authentic being related, and then the unnecessary and the inauthentic. And you talk about sort of burying it, but I, I wonder if it's maybe more a fact of sort of teasing out what's authentic and delivering the information in a certain way, the, the authenticity and, and sort of how we connect with people, how we know when something is not authentic, when it's not, not real. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question overall because novels, for instance, are not usually verbatim accounts of what happened. They're, they're fiction and they're not, they're not nonfiction. I mean, they're, yeah. So, how do you sense what's authentic? To me, a novel has to be really, for, to appeal to me, a novel has to be very authentic. You, you really raise a good question. How do, you, how do you define authenticity? What's authentic? It, to me, it needs to be plausible. However, magical realism, when it's done well, just, I just get such a great kick out of it. I love it, mm. even though I know it, it doesn't make sense on a, on a straight uh, one-to-one level but there's there's something authentic about it because you're in a in a way in a dream world and you know what the rules are but you know when they do a Disney movie they always they always tell the writer we we can have magical creatures but we have to know what the rules are and we mm. have to stick to the rules so that you have something to latch on to it's not just totally up for grabs but I, I personally have a problem with a lot of fiction. Uh, to me, a lot of it is not plausible. And it, it's, it's a wanton act of imagination sometimes when the writer says, look what I can think up. This, this happened. And now look, I thought this up and this happened to the person. And I think, I, well, yeah, I, okay, but take me with you. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to say that I belong to a book club that only reads novels because I don't read enough novels <laughs> and I'm trying to force myself. And the people in the book club are very sweet, very, really smart writers themselves. And they say to me, why don't you like novels? And I say, because you can just tell they're making it up. <laughs> and then, and then they get embarrassed because I'm so stupid. <laughs> but... I, I wanted I, I know it's made up, but I wanted to engage me at a level that helps me believe it could have really happened. You know, like um, The Handmaid's Tale. It takes place in a future that hasn't happened in our country. And yet, I believe every moment of it because, well, I didn't know why I believed it. I didn't know why it seemed so plausible to me, even though these things have never happened, literally. And then I read the author's explanation of that. She said she never had anything happen in the book that hadn't happened in history in a, in a way like it. For instance, the handmaids 
all wear red. So she said there are times in history when your clothing delineates who you are, it defines who you are. And the, the yellow patches in Nazi Germany on the Jews was an example of that. So there's an echo of everything she does in real history. And that probably is why a totally fictional imaginary account of the future struck me as real. But this is only me. There are a lot of people who are very happy to read the, you know, kind of extreme acts of imagination that would stop me cold. So everybody should be happy with what they like. I'm not trying to change things. I'm not trying to change them too much. <laughs> what do you say? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I'm hearing something very interesting about being engaged in authenticity and everything coming down to, um, I think what you talk about in your book is being a very deeply human experience that we're sharing. One of the things in your book that you talk about is sort of this connection between empathy and this theory of the mind. So empathy being the way that you relate to people, the emotional side of things, the heart, and the theory of mind being the sort of rationality behind things, the reason, the head. What I'm hearing a little bit is when you're reading fiction, maybe both of these aren't ringing true for you. Maybe the the emotion might ring true, but then the rational doesn't so much. Or if the rational rings true, maybe the emotion doesn't. And it sounds like The Handmaid's Tale brings those two together because it has that basis in reality, but also um, sort of the emotional investment from the author that she's pouring in. It could be. It could be uh, uh, that she doesn't violate my sense of logic. Uh, she doesn't say, this is true because I say it's true. She said, this is true. And you, somewhere you've heard something like this that you knew was true. And I'm building on that truth. And, and, that, and maybe that's what's happening. And in any case, I, I find it really pleasurable to see that kind of imagination at work. It's interesting, I once wrote a play when I was a very young man, and I showed it to a director who was very smart, and he was a little rough on me. And he said, the next time you use your imagination, base it on reality. I, I had made up a play by Gogol, because I, I didn't know the real plays by Gogol, I just knew that he wrote plays. <laughs> and I... And I, I had actors acting in this fake play, and it didn't make any sense. And I, I was, no, I was very young, but it was a good lesson to learn that you, you don't you don't gain too much by lying. Amen to that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I feel like you're the type of person who is deeply driven by curiosity about the world. And I'd love to sort of take a look at that and how that plays, what role that plays in communicating Wait, hold, with hold people. Oh, sure, sure. Are you there? I am still here. It's, yep. Okay. <laughs> somebody right out the window with a blower. Sorry. <laughs> that is that is absolutely okay. When I started this conversation, uh, we had the garbage men going by and shouting things at each other. So this is oh. all of the, the joys of <laughs> podcasting. Real life happening. Yes. Yes. What What is up with that? What is up with real life interrupting? The wonderful thing is real life is always happening. And <laughs> a good deal of the time, we ignore it. And that, that's where the fun is. The, the interruptions, the rough edges, the unexpected. That 
uncertainty is the one thing you can count on in life. You can't count on anything but that everything will go wrong at one point or another. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> um, when we're talking about building an understanding between two people, communicating thoughts, messages, really connecting with the other person, you talk in your book a little bit about a willingness to be changed by the other person. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it might apply to a writer? That's an interesting question, how it might apply to a writer. Let me try to first explain what I mean by that. I think I came to the realization about 20 years ago that real listening is the ability to be willing to be changed by the other person. And I, I think I understood this from my work on the stage, where unless I'm really listening to the other actor, I'm not going to have an, an unguarded response to that person. If I'm not really listening, I'll probably respond to that person the way I decided to respond to the person last night when I was reading the script. But in fact, when I was reading the script, I wasn't getting what I'm getting now from this other person. So there's an inauthenticity about the response. It's, it's a general response. It's an, a response built on an idea rather than an experience. The experience is what the other person is giving me. And if I let them in, if I listen to them, truly, fully listen, I'll be changed by them and I'll respond in a spontaneous way. And I think that applies when you're sitting next to someone at dinner. Say you're at a big dinner and you're, there's a stranger next to you. So you say, well, I, I never ask people what they do. I ask them what they're passionate about. And that, that gets them off onto something they really care about. Sometimes it's what they, their work is, but often it's, counting the eyes on a fly or something <laughs> really unexpected. So when I listen to what they care about, if I'm really listening, I can respond with questions born of curiosity, or I might notice they're telling me something that has, that sounds a little crazy or something I don't, I don't agree with at all. But if I listen with the willingness to be changed by them in some way, What's underneath what they're saying? What are they really talking about that I can resonate with? And how can I be changed for the better by what this person is saying? Now, this sounds a little new agey, I know. But the interesting thing is, if I let that other person have the chance to change my thinking, to change my point of view, we can actually have a really interesting exchange where we're both more authentic with each other and both of us start to say things like well i don't know it seems to me instead of this is the way it is and it can be a more exciting conversation now how it how that applies to writing i get i don't know perhaps perhaps in the way that when you're thinking about what the other person may be thinking as you write you may be actually in the process as a result of that of challenging your own assumptions. A good essay for me, for instance, is not just telling people what, they, what the writer thinks, but imagining what an opposing idea might be and letting that into the essay and having a, a little dialogue happen in the essay between what you think your point is and what you think might be an opposing point of view to get caught up in, as a reader, to get caught up in that kind of an internal conversation, to me, is more interesting than just hearing somebody's theory. So that may be one way it applies. 
I think that's that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think the question I was trying to ask is whether writing can be a conversation, if writing can be more than a one-way you know, stream of communication, you know, shouting through a bullhorn at someone else. And I, I really, I really love that. And the answer you just gave, talking about writing as a dialogue, talking about opening yourself and um, being empathetic with your eventual reader is just such a beautiful way of doing that. It, it oddly enough, it, and I think this has been borne out in uh, studies, you not only become more available to the other person when you're exercising empathy, you become more available to yourself. You become more aware of your own emotions. And I would add to that, you can even become more aware of the moments that the thoughts that might challenge your own assumptions, your own conclusions, where you've thought this through and you know what the answer to the question is, but somewhere in some part of your head, because your head isn't all thinking the same thing. So there, there are different thoughts and, and feelings and points of view sort of wrestling for dominance. And the one that rises to the top, the one that you say, this is what I'm going to, this is the point I'm going to make. If, if through empathy, you also can hear another voice in your head saying, are you really sure of that? What about, what about this? How does this impinge on that? It could be an interesting, more interesting and more three-dimensional thing you have to say when you understand that it, things aren't just one way. Things, things are much more complex than that. And complexity, if it's composed in a pleasing way, can be really beautiful. And I think for a lot of writers, they dismiss that second voice. I think that they dismiss that as doubt or they dismiss that as fear or you know, as second guessing themselves. But I, I think you're right, it can be very valuable to appreciate the complexity of our own minds that yes, you may you may not be certain how you think about this, or there may be another opposing viewpoint you want to let into this. I love that. <laughs> well, it, I found it fun. I found it interesting. Uh, and I and I do think that the, that I found in my own life that the research about empathy showing that um, you're more aware of your own feelings, the more empathic you get. I, mm. I think I found that to be true in my, in my personal life. So that's an interesting question because very often when we behave in ways we regret, it's because we haven't heard those opposing voices that say, are you sure you want to talk like that to this person? <laughs> <laughs> You know, earlier we started our conversation talking about exposition in plays and the, the way that we use jargon and the way that we bury authenticity in paragraphs and paragraphs of introduction. And I wonder sometimes if that is um, our ego getting in the way, if that's just ourselves getting in the way of communicating effectively. I think you may be right. I think it's, it's, a, way of, it's a way of thinking that says, I have this to tell you. Your job is to sit and listen, take it in, process it, believe it, remember it. It's not your job. It's my job to help you do that. I, I'm in charge of whether or not you follow me. There's an exercise. We do a very basic improv exercise, which is the mirroring exercise. And if we're mirroring each other, I'm looking into the mirror and you're my mirror. And you have to follow my movements to the millisecond, not 
with no lag. Mm. No, you're not an echo of me. You're my actual mirror image. And if I move quickly and jerkily, you, it's, it's so clear which one of us is the mirror and which one of us is the subject. But it should be, if it's done properly, a person walking into the room can't tell who the mirror is because they're both identical in their movements. But it's the person who's looking into the mirror who has the job of helping the other person follow. And that's the same as the communicator trying to help the listener or the reader or the audience follow them or the teacher hoping that the students follow. Hmm. It's, it's not, it, it, of course, it's their job as much as possible to pay attention. But especially when it's not, it's not something that's going to show up on the exam but it's something, it's a fuller, richer experience. We want them to understand with depth something about the universe or something about the character we're writing about. It's our job to help them keep with us. And, and I think that's an example of what you were just talking about. I could listen to you talk for hours, um, and I'm sure that my listeners <laughs> could too. You are, you are fascinating. You are wonderful. I want to make sure that people get a chance to look up your Women in Business project as well, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that's nice. And it's the, the website is allthecommunicationtraining.com. Uh, and uh, we have a program for women in business that's uh, a workshop that I'm very excited about. So I'm, I, I hope people look it up and take a, take a glance at it. They will. I will have a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. As a woman in business myself, this is very, very delightful and intriguing to me. And I absolutely love the picture on the homepage. You just look like the most joyful person in the world. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. You're just, you're doing wonderful work. Thanks so much.